Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Our guest is USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page, author of a new biography, Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power, which talks about the life and political career of the California Democratic Congresswoman. She became the first female Speaker of the House in 2007. The book chronicles her legislative victories and her political battles. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. now my privilege to present the gavel of the United States House of Representatives to the first woman speaker in our history, the gentlelady from California, Nancy Pelosi. Susan Page, you have just published a new biography of Nancy Pelosi titled Madam Speaker. What are a few things about Nancy Pelosi that both her supporters and her detractors would be surprised about? So before I answer your question, Susan, let me just say that clip is an example of the gift that C-SPAN has been. I mean, I use C-SPAN all the time as a daily uh, reporter, but you never appreciate it more than when you're writing a, a book like this, where you can go back and see what actually happened uh, on an historic occasion like that. You don't have to rely on news accounts of it or still pictures. And so thank you to C-SPAN for all you do for our democracy. Well, that's very kind. So the, <laughs> the thought is, I mean, Nancy Pelosi has become a lightning rod for her critics and has uh, so many supporters uh, in her own party and nationally. But the book is a very personal story as well as a political one. And you learn little things about her and her personality. So what are some of those few character traits that the public Nancy doesn't reveal? So let, let me talk about the surprise. Uh, and if you, if you ask me uh, what surprised me and might surprise people who both like Nancy Pelosi and don't like Nancy Pelosi, I think it would be her mother. Uh, you know, she, we, we know that her father was a famous politician, a big figure, a member of Congress, elected five times, elected three times uh, mayor of Baltimore. Her, her mother, who was known as Big Nancy, as compared to her daughter, Little Nancy, uh, was a remarkable political force of her own, an organizer for her husband, uh, a strategist, an entrepreneur, a small businesswoman somebody who liked to bet on the ponies. She was a regular at Pimlico. She is someone, uh, a risk taker. Big Nancy D'Alessandro was someone whose lessons are reflected uh, in every stage of Nancy Pelosi's life, and they're lessons that she applies today as Speaker of the House. So what are the strengths that she took away from each one of her parents? So from her uh, she took away uh, her political ideology. She is in many ways still the New Deal Democrat that her father was, uh, her father an ally of FDR, um, such an ally of FDR that he named his second son Franklin Delano Roosevelt D'Alessandro, which is kind of a mouthful. Uh, from her mother, I think she took how you organize behind the scenes, how you keep something. Her mother kept something called the favor file, which is exactly what it sounds like. It means people, constituents, would come and need help finding housing or help getting a son out of jail or help getting into a, a figuring out the Im immigration status. And her mother would arrange the favor, keep a record of the favor, 
rely on the person to turn out and vote in the next election, and also tap that person when someone down the road needed a favor that they might be able to deliver. It is the essence of politics. Well, while we're talking about them, let's see a little bit of video of Nancy D'Alessandro's father. Uh, this was from uh, 1987. Let me see if I can find it. Yes, about meeting uh, FDR in person from Maryland Public Television, 1978. Sorry, 1978. So, one day, I got a call. I was in the Speaker's chair in Congress as acting Speaker, Chairman of a committee. And the page come up to me and said, Mr. Congressman, the White House is calling you. The President wants you. I said, son, you go back. I thought they were pulling my leg. And tell the Re- pros- President Roosevelt, if he wants to talk to me, to come down the third precinct of the third ward in Little Italy, and I'll talk to him. You thought they were kidding. I thought they were pulling my leg. So when I went back after the session was over, and my secretary said, did you get the call from the president? No. So I called up his secretary, and he laughed. He said, I told the president what you said. I said, well, I'm sorry. I thought they were pulling my leg. So I went in to see him the next day, and he had a jacket. He was dressed good. I remember him getting a silver cigarette case out and opening it, giving me a cigarette. I said, I cleaned this up a little bit. I said, Mr. President, if the boys could only see me now. <laughs> so in Baltimore, the family was political royalty. Tell me a bit about her youth and how she lived her life in that city at that time. Yeah, you know, the D'Alessandros of Baltimore at the time were like the Kennedys of Boston. Uh, when Nancy Pelosi was born, when Nancy D'Alessandro was born in 1940, it was in all the papers. Uh, it was uh, the, her picture as a newborn, surrounded by her five brothers, her mother who was in bed, and her father uh, ran uh, in the in the in the Baltimore newspapers that day. That's how prominent they were. Her father, an amazing figure, you see him there as an adult, as a former mayor, and as a character. He always wore the bow tie. He had the the pencil mustache. Um, He was actually kicked out of school, out of St. Leo's school, at age 13 and never really went back to school, never graduated from elementary school or high school or college, uh, but someone who uh, had enormous... Uh, enthusiasm and charisma and energy and a great desire to do things and ended up being this very important political figure in Charm City. He mentions Little Italy. How important was the family's Italian roots? Really important. And in fact, the house that Nancy Pelosi grew up in, now her cousin lives in. It's still in the family. It's a house that her parents moved into when they were married and did not move out of for their lives. They live there the rest uh, of their lives. In the center of this community, of course, Little Italy has contracted since the days uh, that the D'Alessandros were living there, but still a, a real community, still with some of the restaurants that were around when Nancy D'Alessandro was growing up. And how important was the Catholic faith to her and the family? Yeah, really fundamental. St. Leo's was the, was the local church. It was where babies were baptized. It's where children went to school, it's where funerals were held and those who had passed away were mourned. The family was a hardcore Democrat, and Nancy Pelosi, even as a child, was deeply partisan. You have a couple little stories that illustrate that. One was the toy elephant. So Nancy D'Alessandro is a little girl. Her parents take her to the polling place on Election Day, as I'm sure that was a familiar place for her to go, even as very young. A poll worker offered her a little stuffed toy elephant 
and she wouldn't take it because she understood that elephants stood for the Republican Party and that's not who they were. And, you know, even as an adult, she had these similar, really strong partisan feelings. She, she as a young mother uh, with four children at that time, uh, they moved to San Francisco. They were looking for a house to rent. Uh, there were a lot of landlords not eager to rent to a family that had four little children. Uh, she finally found a house she liked. It had a backyard. It had a swing set. They were just about to sign the lease when she discovered that the reason the house was available was because the owner had taken a job in the Nixon administration. And she said, there's no way I could rent a house from someone who was going to work for Richard Nixon, and she didn't. Throughout her uh, success and failures as speaker, how uh, did this real sense of partisanship, this deep partisanship, play out for her? You know, I think it is. Uh, it was fundamental in Baltimore. Baltimore was a Democratic city. Uh, you didn't need to worry about Republicans so much. You needed to worry about the Democratic primary. Same thing is true in San Francisco, where she moved and became very active in politics, chair of the Democratic uh, of the California Democratic Party, and then a candidate herself. And you know, when you see her operate in Washington today. There is a, you know, as we become such a partisan town, you can see the effects of that, I think. I think she's never been in a situation where it was, uh, where bipartisanship was the rule of the day. Not that she's never uh, cut bipartisan deals, of course she has. But that is, I think, is not the, the instinct that she grew up with. And therefore, does it contribute to the hyperpartisanship? You know, I think that uh, the thing that her strongest uh, admirers say is that she is a master of our political system. And I think one thing that her critics might say is that she didn't try to change things about our political system. So she uh, excelled in this very partisan atmosphere. She became one of the party's most successful fundraisers. You might say perhaps the effect of big money is something that someone would like to, to ameliorate or to reduce. Uh, but she took the system that she faced and she worked it with the kind of mastery that we haven't seen since figures like Sam Rayburn or Lyndon Johnson. On the fundraising, you report in your book a pretty eye-popping figure of how much she's raised in leadership. Close to a billion dollars, uh, right up there. She may have gotten over it by this point. That is a stunning amount of money. Uh, and she's used her California base uh, as an important way to raise money. She raises money from Hollywood and from business. She even got a contribution from a businessman in New York named Donald Trump. When was that? Well, that was years ago when Donald Trump was still a Democrat, although he was giving to some Republicans at that time, too. But it was the first time they met Charlie Rangel, the legendary congressman from New York, introduced them at a time she was on a fundraising call. Uh, and he remembered that. And when she, was, uh, uh, when she was elected speaker, he sent her a congratulatory note. Uh, and even years later, when he was in office and she had become... His, his, the face of the Democratic opposition to Donald Trump, he still saw her as, as a potential ally. I remember I interviewed him with my colleague David Jackson for USA Today just before the midterms in 2018. And at this time, many of Trump's aides and strategists were alarmed by the possibility that Democrats would gain control of the House. They understood all that would mean in terms of investigations, as it turned out, even in terms of impeachment. But 
Donald Trump, President Trump, in this interview aboard Air Force One, was not that concerned. He said that that was he could work with them, that he could work with the Democratic House because they would also want to get things done. Of course, things turned out a bit differently. And we will talk about some of those as our hour progresses. Before we get into more of her pathway to power, a bit about your book. How long ago did you start it? I started it uh, about two and a half years ago. And you write in the book that Nancy Pelosi granted you 10 Mm -hmm. interviews. How difficult was that negotiation? So there wasn't, I was grateful that she she gave me interviews. I didn't have a deal with her beforehand, before I signed the contract for the book on interviews. But I'd interviewed her uh, over the years occasionally uh, for for news stories. Um, I thought she would probably talk to me a little bit. Uh, she agreed to talk to me once a quarter. So every three months, uh, I would go up and have an interview with her in the in the speaker's office, um, which I thought was a lot. I thought that was a lot of interviews for somebody who is the speaker of the house. And some of those interviews took place on big days, on days she had a dispute with uh, AOC and the squad that blew up on the day impeachment hearings began in the house. Big days, important days to be there. But I was worried after the first interview that I would never get a second, because when I came in for the first interview, she gave me a Dove bar, you know, those ice cream bars that are coated with chocolate. And she had one and I had one, but I bit into mine and shards of chocolate scattered on her pristine carpet, cream colored carpet, and made uh, kind of a mess. And I was worried that she would never invite me back. Fortunately, she didn't invite me back, but she never again offered me anything to eat. Lesson learned. Uh, in those interviews uh, overall, uh, you write in, in the introduction that she's a tough interview. Why, oh, how so? How did they play out? So she's very disciplined, uh, and she knows what she wants to say, and she is not embarrassed to say it over and over again. So there are a couple quotes that she gives that... Uh, you know, about Abraham Lincoln and the importance of public sentiment, or about from Ronald Reagan about the strength of an immigrant nation. And she is perfectly happy in an interview to tell you exactly what she said that day at a news conference or three months ago uh, in a speech. Um, so the, the effort to get things that are new and different, more spontaneous, more insightful, um, was was tough. But she did get uh, the interviews got better the more of them I had, and I kept finding things uh, that she didn't know about about herself. And I think that I think that helped. I think that helped uh, the interviews become more productive. One of those was a patent that her mother had been granted. <laughs> she was not aware of. She she her mother was this great entrepreneur who uh, created this machine, this aluminum machine to give women facials, and it's it was called Beauty by Vapor. Um, and she submitted a totally official-looking scientific drawing uh, for patents twice for this machine, which we found. We found the uh, we found the patent application. And in fact, one of my sons uh, went on eBay and found a Nancy D'Alessandro Beauty by Vapor machine, which he bought for me off eBay, and which still worked. I wonder if she's ever seen one. Yeah, I don't know. I showed that to her and the patent. 
Uh, so as we go forward in her pathway to power, she went to school here in Washington, D.C., <laughs> Trinity College, Catholic College. And then right after that, what did she do? So she went to work for Senator Brewster, Daniel Brewster, who was a one-term senator from Maryland, uh, who had hired two people for his office when it opened up. He hired Nancy D'Alessandro as a reception. He hired a young man named Stenny Hoyer as a, leg- as, a, as a clerk. He later became a legislative aide. So the two people who now lead the Democratic Party in the House first met fresh out of college in this junior senator's office. How would you characterize the relationship between the two of them, as long as it is? So there is no, uh, there are few stories in Washington that excite more interest among insiders in the relationship between Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer because they were for years great rivals. Uh, Steny Hoyer thought he was on a track to become the House Democratic whip, uh, member of the leadership, when Nancy Pelosi announced she was going to run for that office. This was before there was even an opening for whip. They ended up running a campaign that lasted for three years, cost millions of dollars in campaign contributions. They would they would uh, give out campaign cash to try to get to get votes. Became pretty bitter, uh, and then she won. And since then, she has always been one level above Steny Hoyer. That is not really a recipe for people to become best friends. And their rivalry has been well known. I think it's less now. I think they now have a have a good working relationship. They're both in their 80s now, uh, toward the end of their long and illustrious careers. Uh, Steny Hoyer told me that he had, in an interview for the book, that he had hoped to be speaker, but he was proud to be uh, majority leader. And if you had told him as a young man he would be the longtime uh, leader, majority leader for House Democrats, he would have been really proud of that. So after uh, after she graduated from Trinity, her ambitions, as you report, this is she wanted to go to law school. Her mother, you report, wanted her to be a nun. She did (laughs) neither. Uh, What took her in a different direction? So her mother wanted to be a nun when she was a little girl. Uh, Her mother, I think, gave up those aspirations pretty soon. In fact, the story goes that her mother said, you should think about being a nun, and that little Nancy said, you know, I think looking being a priest looks like it has more power to it. Uh, that would be something that would be characteristic of how Nancy Pelosi might might look at that. She did think about law school. She took the LSAT um, to prepare for that. But she got married to Paul Pelosi. Uh, they st- immediately started having children. They had five in all. Uh, and her her life took a different course. You know, she never, though, stopped being political. Even when she was a young mother in New York, she was doing uh, canvassing. She said that pushing a baby or two in a stroller enabled her to sail past uh, people at the at the entrances to buildings who might stop someone else so that she could go, go in and pamphlet the apartment building. The public rarely sees Paul Pelosi. What, what can you tell me about him? So he did agree to an interview for the book. He rarely does interviews. Um, I think he told me that he thinks if people have questions about Nancy Pelosi, they should ask her. Um, he's lived, lived, they have a uh, this long marriage, five children, nine grandchildren. He said one thing he's done for her is he's been financially very successful as a businessman, um, and that that has given her a kind of independence uh, politically to have that as a financial base. Um, he does come... He does spend time here. He's very a graduate of Georgetown University. Uh, was elected uh, president of uh, a student body there 
uh, when he was a student there and still active uh, in Georgetown affairs. You uh, say that in tw- 2018, Nancy Pelosi was the seventh wealthiest member in mm-hmm. Congress. So what's the source of that? What business is he in? Well, he's he had a financial company. He uh, worked with Silicon Valley. Now they have also uh, a vineyard. Um, so he's been he's been very successful as an investor and a businessman in San Francisco, where his family is from. His family is prominent uh, in San Francisco. His brother Ronald was a member of the city council there. He has a vineyard, but you mentioned in the book that she rarely drinks alcohol. She almost never drinks alcohol, uh, and uh, although I was told that the one one of the rare times that she had a glass of champagne was when Janet Yellen was appointed. Uh, chairman, chairman of the Federal Reserve instead of Larry Summers. You know, let me stay with that thought for a moment because you're very well aware of uh, the many YouTube videos and the like that have become memes about Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi that have uh, accused her sometimes of being in public light uh, drunk or mm-hmm. on medication or the like. What is the reality of that situation? I don't think that's true. Um, I don't, I've seen no signs at all that she drinks. Um, I've never seen her drink. I've been at dinners where she's been. I've never seen her drink. Um, I think that uh, you can do a lot with a video clip. Um, people could probably make fun of me on a video clip from this interview. Uh, I just think that's, I think that's a slur that is incorrect. So go back to their story. Five kids in six years. Six years in a week. Wow. <laughs> Uh, you tell us that she sees motherhood as something that really forged her and also encourages women who have been mothers to, to use that as a base to uh, continue their careers. Talk about how she viewed what motherhood did for her and her skill set. So it's so interesting because you think of her, the lessons she learned from her father, the politician, as being preparation for the political career she had. She says that she got the best preparation from being from running this household of five little kids. And her children describe it with a kind of military precision. She was extremely organized. She set standards. Uh, Perfect preparation prevents poor performance. The five Ps, she would say that over and over again until they could all recite it. Um, she, She also, I think, perfected and I only have two kids, but mothers with larger families, I think, will recognize this, that you're constantly figuring out what motivates your children. That's true even if you just have one child. What motivates them, what they're really saying when they're saying this, what's behind what they're saying, um, what can get them from where they are to where you want them to be. Uh, how can you form alliances within a family to get you there? Those are all skills she learned as the mother of five. And she's not, you know, I think sometimes women of her generation tried not to talk about having children uh, as though they wanted to be more like male candidates. That's not really been true of her. She talks about her kids. And, you know, the first time she was elected speaker, you showed a, cl- a clip of that at the beginning of this of this hour. At the end of it, she invited her grandchildren, and other children to come up all around her. That was not something any previous speaker had done. And in fact, it, there was some, she had some concern that it wasn't permitted under the parliamentarian rules, and she decided to just do it anyway. 
The very first political convention this network, C-SPAN, covered was 1984 Democratic National Convention in San Francisco. And Nancy Pelosi had a role in bringing that to San Francisco. What was it? So she was chair of the host committee. She was important in bringing it there. I interviewed Walter Mondale, of course, who has just passed away and who was nominated at that convention. I interviewed him for the book, and he talked about uh, Nancy Pelosi's organizational skills that were apparent even then. Diane Feinstein was then the mayor of San Francisco, so the two of them were really crucial in making that convention go well. Of course, the 1984 presidential campaign didn't go so well for Walter Mondo, but the convention did. I, I covered that convention. I was working then for Newsday um, when Geraldine Ferraro became the first woman nominated by a major party for national office. Very exciting time. Nancy Pelosi told me that she could hardly express how exciting that was for her. And who knew how, how many years would pass before a woman would actually become vice president? It took, uh, it took what, more, three, more than three decades for that to happen. There was an exchange you reported at and the convention between uh, Nancy Pelosi and Lindy Boggs. Who's Lindy Boggs? And what did, her, what did she say to Nancy that stayed with her throughout her life? So Lindy Boggs uh, was, of course, Louis, Congresswoman from Louisiana. She succeeded her husband, Hal Boggs, who had been in the leadership himself when he was missing, presumed dead, uh, from an uh, airplane crash in, in Alaska. Um, and at that point, Nancy Pelosi got was offered a second political position that had some power. And she already had one. And she said to Lindy Boggs, uh, maybe I should give up this other job because, you know, I'm going to take on this additional job that has power. And Lindy Boggs said, no man would ever do that. And told her not to give up the other job and told her, uh, Nancy, know thy power. And that message was so important to Nancy Pelosi that when she wrote her own memoirs years later, she titled it, Know Your Power. So about power, which is really what your study is all about, does she appreciate power for power's sake or for the policy objectives that it enables her to do? She, uh, it's, she definitely has things she wants to get done. Uh, and she sees power as a way to do the things that you think are important to do and that you want to do as a policymaker. Uh, so, in, be, in fact, that's one reason she's willing to compromise. You know, some, some Democrats are critical of Nancy Pelosi because they say she's too willing to compromise on principle. She's not standing up for Medicare for all. Instead, she's trying to uh, enhance the Affordable Care Act. Uh, she supports climate change legislation, but doesn't embrace uh, the Green New Deal. Um, but Pelosi's attitude is that you need to, that you have to play a long game. You need to get as much as you can, but you need to make compromises, and sometimes taking half a loaf is the most you're going to get. Uh, it's, she, is both, she is both a partisan, uh, I- ideological Democrat, a liberal Democrat, She's also a Baltimore Paul who wants to get things done. And actually, in an, Barack Obama, President Obama, uh, who was, of course, her crucial ally in the biggest achievement of her career, the Affordable Care Act, uh, told me that that's what he likes about Nancy Pelosi, that at the end of the day, she wants to get stuff done. The next important step in her career was 1987 and also involves a member, a female member of Congress, Sala Burton. What, uh, tell me that story and why it was important in her trajectory. So it's interesting how many women in politics, and particularly in that generation, were pushed into politics by other women. 
that's that is something that you see. You mentioned Lindy Boggs, one mentor of of Nancy Pelosi. Sala Burton had uh, been elected, had first uh, t- 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 been elected to the seat that her husband uh, Phil Burton had held a- after his death, and she was dying uh, of cancer. Um, and she was friends with Nancy Pelosi, and she called Nancy Pelosi in uh, when she was very close to death and said that she hoped that she would run for her seat and that she, Sally Burton, would endorse her, which was a huge gift, right, given that she was the incumbent and given all the Democrats who would want to run for this seat in San Francisco. Um, And that was what Nancy Pelosi told me. She never would have thought about running without Sally Burton delivering her that message. And it seems funny because she's been such a, she seems like such a natural Paul in, so, in some ways, and she's from a political family. But she told me there was never, that it thought had never crossed her mind until Sally Burton really encouraged her to run. She ran in a wild race in San Francisco, 14 candidates in this big, sprawling primary, one narrowly over Harry Britt, another famous San Francisco name, and Simpson has not lost an election. She arrived in Congress in 1987 with that special election. What was Congress like? What was the House like when she arrived? Well, the House was mostly male, overwhelmingly male, um, and it, uh, uh, it was not so different from the House in which her father had served. Uh, you showed the clip of Tommy D'Alessandro uh, years later. Well, in, in 1987, he was in his final months of life, <clears throat> he was ailing. He managed to summon the strength to go see his only daughter sworn in uh, as as uh, as a member of Congress. And he took the occasion to lobby the speaker to appoint her to the Appropriations Committee, a big plum assignment, and one that he had held, a committee that he had been on. She didn't get it as a that first time, but she eventually got on the Appropriations Committee. And when you talk to Nancy Pelosi now, she continues to call herself an appropriator. So time to plunge into some of the big issues that she has shepherded through. One of her very first ones was AIDS. In 1987, uh, you report that 20,000 people died in the United States of AIDS. Looking back at that number, it seems so so large. Uh, and Dr. Anthony Fauci was one of the people that was involved in AIDS research at the time. How risky was it as a brand new member of Congress to get involved in AIDS policy? So not risky in her district because San Francisco had been hit harder than any other place with in those early days of the AIDS epidemic. But dangerous nationally, politically. Um, You know, it was a time when uh, the president wasn't, President Reagan was not talking about AIDS, Uh, when it was some, when there were politicians who saw it not as a public health issue, but as a moral issue, as some kind of anti-gay judgment from God. Uh, So there was, when she, when she spoke up on the House floor, uh, that very first time in 1987, after being sworn in, she said she had come there to address AIDS. She called it an earthquake. And there were some of the other members of the delegation standing around her, and some of them were not did not think this was a smart thing for her to do. I'll tell you something, that was right before C-SPAN. C-SPAN was then not... I, I tried to find this 1987 oh, okay. clip, and I don't <laughs> think C-SPAN had it. I think it was a little later that you were covering every single thing. Is that right? September of 1987 is when we started September. covering it. Yeah. So it was months after she was sworn in 
that C-SPAN started, because I can't tell you how hard I looked to find that clip of her talking about AIDS. Well, we found one from KQED, which is her home public television station in San Francisco, in 1988, as she's looking to be elected for her first full uh, general congressional election. Let's listen to the things that, at the time, she thought were very important to her as a brand-new member making her case to the public. The most urgent health issue facing our community is AIDS. Last March, I introduced a bill which would assist in financing AIDS patient care. Included in the bill were early intervention projects for people infected with the AIDS virus and mental health projects for people affected by AIDS and ARC. I'm proud to report to you that both these measures passed both houses of Congress. I've also worked to bring jobs to San Francisco. This year, we were able to get authorization for a new federal building in the city. I've been a strong advocate for child care, parental leave, increasing the minimum wage, and other legislation that recognizes the reality of women in the workplace. What's your reaction? So the same theme, she, if you talk to her today, she would strike some of those same themes, wouldn't she? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, very consistent. Um, and uh, reasonably effective as a new member of Congress. You know, she had one big asset, which is that she had already been active in California politics. So, and she had been uh, she had been the finance chairman for the Senate Democratic Senate Campaign Committee for one George Mitchell, who was then the chairman. So she knew a lot of officials in town. It gave her a standing that not every freshman member of the House had. Her her campaign slogan in that 1987 special election was a voice that will be heard. And that reflected the fact that she came to Washington with some credentials that really helped her. The Democrats had been in power in the House of Representatives for a long time. Mm -hmm. By the time she came to Congress, that all changed in 1994 when Newt Gingrich and the Conservative Opportunity Society took control of the House. And uh, I'm wondering what happened to her view of the leadership in the Democratic Party with that Republican victory? So I think she thought the leadership had failed them, had not been effective, had not been smart, and had not been welcoming. Tom Foley uh, was then the Speaker uh, of the House. Um, There had been some rumors that this upstart California congresswoman might challenge Tom Foley, which she said she wasn't intending to do, but they came, lieutenants came and warned her against doing it. I don't think she liked that either. Uh, I think I think she thought they were not responding to the times in an effective way. You interviewed Newt Gingrich. I did for, about Nancy Pelosi. Uh, uh, often a political uh, combatant with her. What is his view of her during that time and as a speaker? So the two of them could not be politically more different in their views of the role of government, and they were combatants. But one thing they were both were speakers who had a lot of power. And Newt Gingrich, in fact consolidated a lot of power in the speaker's chair that hadn't been there before, and Nancy Pelosi kept it there. And when I interviewed Newt Gingrich, um, he said that, uh, he told me about a a movie, an old movie, uh, in which uh, it involved pirates. And he said that, so it's hard to explain this a little bit, but he said when he saw Nancy Pelosi, he saw a fellow pirate. And by that meaning, not that they were ideologically close, but that they were both very skilled in the business of politics. And he said that with some admiration. You referenced earlier the three-year battle with Steny Hoyer for leadership position. Uh, When did that finally come to a culmination, and when did she then 
join Democratic leadership in the House. So she won the election for Democratic whip in the, toward the in the fall of uh, 2001, and was f- elected actually formally installed as the whip in February of 2002, and has been in the leadership ever since. And that's you know that's pretty unusual. Not since Sam Rayburn has in 2003 she became uh, House Democratic leader when Dick Gephardt left to run uh, for president left the leadership position to run for president. That stint as head of the House Democrats is pretty long. Nobody since Sam Rayburn has held the leadership position for that long. And she held it when they were in the minority, in the majority, in the minority, and now back in the majority again. That's a sign of her hold on this caucus that she has managed to keep a hold of it for that period of time and under that much turmoil. 2002 was the debate over the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi took a strong position counter to Mm -hmm. a lot of Democrats and Republicans and, of course, George Bush's White House. Let's listen to her on October 10th, 2002, on the Iraq war authorization debate. We'll pay any price to protect the American people, but is this the right way to go? to jeopardize in a serious way our young people when that can be avoided. We respect the judgments of our military leaders. It is a civilian decision to go to war, but they present us, the military leaders present us with options which they know are to be a last resort. These costs to the war on terrorism, the loss of life, the cost to our economy, the cost in dollars to our budget, these costs must be answered for. If we go in, certainly we can show our power to Saddam Hussein. If we resolve this issue diplomatically, we can show our strength as a great country. As a great country. Let us show our greatness. Vote no on this resolution. Well, she lost uh, in that particular battle. Uh, but what, what did you observe uh, in hindsight looking at this period of time and her strong stand on the Iraq war and how it positioned her as a leader? So this is this is a very interesting episode because she the safe position to take at the time was to support the war. There was public support uh, for the war in Iraq. Uh, there was Dick Gephardt, the leader, was supporting it. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was the highest ranking member of Congress to oppose the Iraq war from the start. And she opposed it in part because she had been serving on the Intelligence Committee and she did not think the intelligence supported the case for war. Uh, she turned out to be right in that. Um, and it, so it's this, I think it's a sign that she is willing to take what now looks in retrospect like the smart thing to do, but at the time carried some real political risks. In one interview, uh, you know, she, she, the, her biggest disappointment um, when she first became leader was, uh, and at this point, was her, and when she became speaker the first time, was her failure to convince George W. Bush to withdraw U.S. troops from Iraq. And in one of the interviews I did with her, she said it was the biggest mistake that had been made in American history. How does she view President Bush, his tenure in office, in hindsight? Well, she's, uh, I think her view on him has softened a little after four years of Donald Trump, uh, because she was certainly had more respect and regard for George W. Bush than she did for Donald Trump. But it is still colored by her view that the war in Iraq was such a mistake, carried such a cost for our country. Uh, So I think that she continues to have, uh, you know, a a pretty tough judgment 
on George W. Bush as a president. In the closing days of his administration, of course, the 2008 mm -hmm. uh, you know, financial meltdown and the need for what was then the largest bailout package that this town had seen. In hindsight, it doesn't look so so big compared to recent ones. But uh, what was her role in negotiating a successful outcome to that? So really crucial. At that point, the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House had not spoken in months because of their division over the Iraq war. But the economy you know, faces financial meltdown. It became crucial to get a huge and quite unpopular bill through Congress to help bail out the banks. Uh, she and uh, John Boehner, um, who's you sh you, we saw a very young John, young John Boehner in that in that earlier clip, uh, agreed they would each provide half of eat their caucus to pass what was called TARP, the ta ta Toxic uh, Assets Relief Package, um, and the d Republicans did not deliver on their vote, not even close. She delivered more than half of the Democratic caucus, not enough to get it through, caused a huge reaction in the stock market catastrophe seemed to loom. At that point, she got it through Congress with Democratic votes. Uh, they, there were more Republican votes, still not half of the Republicans voting for it. And she told me that that vote uh, was necessary to avoid a potential Great Depression, another Great Depression, but that she thinks that's why Democrats then lost control of the House uh, in 2010. She thinks that was a more damaging vote politically for Democrats than voting for the Affordable Care Act. Well, that's the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, because that chapter in the book, uh, the bill has become known colloquially as Obamacare, but you title it Pelosi Care. Why? Uh, it wouldn't have passed. The Affordable Care Act would not have passed without Barack Obama and his commitment to it. It would not have passed without Nancy Pelosi and her political skills. And in fact, there was a point, you'll remember, uh, the, when Democrats lost their 60th vote in the Senate and with it the ability to stop a filibuster, when Scott Brown won the seat uh, that had been held by Ted Kennedy. Uh, and there were a lot of voices in Washington, including Rahm Emanuel, the White House chief of staff, who thought Democrats should go for a smaller bill, something maybe just cover children, because the political currents were now too unfriendly to get the big comprehensive bill through. Um, and I discovered in doing reporting that Nancy Pelosi issued an extraordinary threat to Barack Obama uh, because she wanted to have a big bill. And she had had conversations with Ted Kennedy before his death. He wanted to have a big, comprehensive bill. And in this key meeting at the White House, she said, you know, there are some people who want a small bill. She talked about how she would push through a big bill. And some, there are some voices that want a small bill, of course, Rahm Emanuel is sitting right there in the meeting. Uh, but I can tell you, I won't help you do that. She would not push through a less comprehensive bill. He had a choice. He could go big or he could go home. And Barack Obama naturally chose to go big. And she pushed that through the House in a display of political muscle that we rarely see in this town. How so? Um, you know, the problem was the House had passed a bill the House liked, and the Senate had passed a bill the Senate liked, and they were different. But in order to get the bill done once that 60th seat was lost in the Senate, they had to use a process called reconciliation, which at the time seemed pretty obscure. But these days we talk about reconciliation morning, noon, and night. Uh, and she had to use recon reconciliation meant that they couldn't make big changes to the Senate bill. They had to swallow this bill that they thought was not nearly as good as their bill. That was what the task was, and that was what the test was 
uh, whether she could get the Senate version of the bill through the House. And she did it by using uh, persuasion and cooperation and by using threats. In fact, in this chapter, you have a description of her as Lyndon Johnson in four-inch heels. Yeah, you know, and you can see some pictures that remind you of Lyndon Johnson where she's jabbing her finger at someone she's trying to persuade. There's a famous one with Donald Trump in the last time they actually had a real conversation at a White House meeting in October of 2019. There's one of her with Barack Obama doing the same thing, jabbing her finger at him intently. Uh, and he, in this picture... Barack Obama has put his hand on Nancy Pelosi's hand, and it's not clear whether he's trying to calm her or he's trying to protect himself. Well, we have another clip, and it's about the passage of the Affordable Care Act. March 21st, 2010, and this is Nancy Pelosi speaking just before the vote. Just think, we will be joining those who established Social Security, Medicare, and now tonight, health care for all Americans. On this vote, the yeas are 219, the nays are 212. The motion to concur in the Senate amendment is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. Seven-vote difference on a big legislation like that. Not really a seven-vote difference, she told me. Uh, Of course, that's the narrowest of margins to get something like that through the House. She told me that she had some votes in her pocket, uh, that she had some Democrats who voted no that would have voted yes if she had to have them because she said you never go to the floor unless you know you're going to win. For me as a reader, that particular chapter brought together all the threads of the story that you'd been telling about Nancy Pelosi throughout the whole book. Uh, the go big aspect that you talked about, the Baltimore politician, get as much as you can, then you can build social justice and her Catholic roots. Do you see this as the, the real pinnacle of her legislative achievements and using those skills? That's so smart. That's exactly right. It was an enormous achievement, and if you ask Nancy Pelosi her biggest achievement of all her lives, of her entire life in public service, she would tell you it was passage of the Affordable Care Act. But Republicans don't see it that way. Well, Republicans, of course, uh, voted against it, um, tried to promise to dismantle it uh, during when they got into power, although they failed to do so. Uh, you know, not everybody thinks, not everyone supports what Nancy Pelosi supports. There are some people who would think the things that she managed to get through are not the right things for the country. Um, And you can have that argument, but you cannot argue that she has not had just this huge impact on this country in, you know, in in a variety of ways. She was was the ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee at 9-11. She was the leading voice against the Iraq war from its start. She pushed through the legislation that helped prevent a Great Depression in 2008. Uh, she was the force behind passage, as we just saw, of the biggest expansion of health care since Medicare and Medicaid. And then her final chapter, she became the face of the Democratic opposition to Donald Trump. But she became the face for Republicans of big government. Yes. And uh, what was the political price that she paid after the Affordable Care Act passed? Well, she lost her speakership. Uh, the Democrats lost control of the House in that 2010 midterm election. Uh, It took them a long time to fight their way back to it. 
2018. Um, and Chuck Schumer, now the Senate uh, Majority Leader, said soon after this happened, after the Democrats lost so much ground in 2010 in the congressional elections, uh, that it had been a mistake. He expressed some regret. And she rebuked him. Uh, she said it wasn't a mistake. It was the right thing to do. We came here to basically to do things, not to get reelected. Another statistic you had in that chapter that demonstrates uh, how, uh, what one operative, polit- uh, Republican political operative said to you, that it was a gift to Republicans, that anti-Pelosi ads ran in that congressional election 161,000 times. So a big target uh, characterized as an example of rigid ideological figure uh, who had San Francisco values. That was a Republican attack on Nancy Pelosi over years. She raised a lot of money for Democrats. Republican raised a lot of money using Pelosi as the villain who needed to be defeated. So fast forward to the 2016 election and and Donald Trump coming into office. Uh, Had she at that point thought about stepping down from Congress? You know, not many people knew this, but she was planning Uh, Once Hillary Clinton was elected, as so many people, I would put myself in that camp, thought she was going to be elected in 2016, Uh, Nancy Pelosi was making plans to step down. She was 76 years old. She had nine grandchildren. Uh, She had some other things she wanted to do. Uh, But that election night was a shock uh, for her and for so many others. Um, She said that once she realized Donald Trump was going to win the election, it was like a mule was kicking her. Physically, She didn't say this metaphorically. She said she felt like a mule was kicking her over and over again. By the end of that night, she decided she wasn't going to go anywhere, uh, that she was going to stay, try to try to stand up to Donald Trump and also to protect Democratic priorities, including the Affordable Care Act. So Donald Trump, uh, the author of The Art of the Deal, uh, came to Washington saying that he was a, a good deal maker. Did he think in the beginning he would be able to craft a relationship and make deals with her? Yes, I think he did. I think he thought that for a long time. Um, and she was determined not ever to? or Well, or I think she would have made a deal if he wanted to make a deal on policy that she supported. Um, but, of course, one of his, his first priority seemed to be uh, curtailing immigration. Uh, and they had very different views on immigration. Then he passed a big tax cut that went disproportionately, in her view, to the wealthy. Um, so they were not aligned on policy. The one thing, endlessly, they, they thought, both sides thought they might make a deal on, would be an infrastructure bill. Uh, that never happened. And here we are talking about an infrastructure bill yet again. People will remember the 35-day government shutdown. When we're talking about deals, Steve Bannon, uh, the uh, longtime Trump aide and advisor, said Trump got totally played in that. How so? Well, uh, Trump thought that uh, they they basically called Trump's bluff. Trump was threatening to shut down the government if he couldn't get more money for his his wall along the southern border. Uh, Democrats, uh, the leadership held strong that they weren't going to give in on that. Um, It was not in retrospect, that cost Trump a lot. It, not every Democrat thought this was the right thing to do. Nancy Pelosi had to work pretty hard to keep Democrats in line behind the policy, especially as days clicked by and m- many government functions were shut down. But it cost. But Trump ended up having to fold. Uh, it cost him a lot politically, and it was a demonstration to Democrats about what they could do if they hung together. 
We have two clips, and we put them together for the sake of time, but they're from two different periods on her relationship with Donald Trump. December 11th, 2018, February 4th, 2020, State of the Union address. I just want to use those as a way to uh, have you talk about how she approached publicly her relationship with the president. Let's watch. I don't think we really disagree so much. I also know that, you know, Nancy's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now. And I understand that. And I fully understand that. We're going to have a good discussion and we're going to see what happens. But we have to have border security. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just won a big victory. And my fellow Americans, the best is yet to come. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. Thank you very much. I've been in Washington a long time. I've never seen a scene like that at the 2020 State of the Union Address. And uh, I've never seen uh, the leader of one branch of government have such a public show of disrespect to another. I thought it was jaw-dropping. And I talked to Nancy Pelosi at some length in an interview about what was happening there. She said that uh, the president came up on stage, handed her a text of his speech, which is traditional, Uh, She started to look through it, uh, scan through it, speed read it uh, to see what he was going to say. She saw him. She saw a statement that she thought was incorrect and untruth. And she wanted to mark it so that she come back to it and say that this thing, this comment, this declaration is untrue. So she looks for a pen. Of course, she doesn't have her purse up there. Uh, There's a little drawer. She opens the drawer. There's no pen in the drawer. She can't find a pen. So she makes a tiny little tear in the margin of the paper to say, I want to get back to this point because I don't think this point is true. And then she found another point she thought wasn't true. So she made another little tear. And by the end of the speech, she had made little tears throughout the speech. She was enraged when he when he honored uh, Rush Limbaugh, a figure that is quite vilified by Democrats. Um, so she was steaming by the time he finished speaking. And she told me she decided that he had shredded the truth And so she would shred his speech. And she stood up, and as you saw, she tore it four times. She had to divide the speech into sections to make them small enough, thin enough for her to tear them. Tore them four times and tossed them down as Mike Pence, the vice president, is standing next to her, pretending not to notice what she's doing. We have just five minutes left in our hour. Uh, And uh, she is the only speaker in history to oversee two presidential impeachments. What is her view of the fact that those were not voted on, uh, he was acquitted in the Senate? Well, the fact that uh, she was quite sure he would be acquitted in the Senate was one reason she was not eager to proceed with impeachment the first time around. But impeachment became basically a political imperative for Democrats after the release of that controversial phone call between Trump and the president of Ukraine. Um, At that point, Trump was impeached and then impeached again uh, late in his term. And she argues that that is a stain on his presidency, that he will never be able to erase whatever happened in the Senate. She came to view that as an important statement of what's acceptable in a president and not. And that was especially true 
after the terrible events of January 6th. Your book actually closes with January 6th recorded in it. From a publishing perspective, how did you get that done for a book that came out in April? <laughs> well, my, uh, my publisher let me add that. Uh, you know, I'd all, always planned to do a final chapter that would reflect the results of the 2020 election, so I had a little bit of play there, but the, my deadline was over and they let me go back uh, to uh, to in- include that important event. And, and I actually talked to Nancy Pelosi, not for the book, but for USA Today, about the events of January 6th. I talked to her about that last week. It was really quite remarkable. She was up on the dais. Her security came up and said she needed to leave. She didn't think there was anything so serious happening, so much so that she left her phone there because she thought she'd be back in a few minutes. And they take her away. And I, I asked her if she thought... If they hadn't gotten her out of there in time, would the mob have killed her? And she said, yes, that was what they were setting out to do. And then she said, now this is an 81-year-old woman. She said, but they would have had a battle on their hands. I'm a street fighter. And then she lifted up her foot and showed me her four-inch stilettos and said, besides, I would have had these as a weapon. She is in what you call her valedictorian, valedictorian term as speaker. She's 81 years old, won't be running for speakership, probably re-election again. So what are the challenges she has in these final years in office? Well, she wants to get these big bills for President Biden through. Uh, and that's going to be tough. You know, we have this very partisan Congress. These are bills the size of which we have rarely seen in the history of our country I think she's quite determined to do that. She works. She has a good working relationship with Joe Biden. Uh, So I'm quite sure she wants to do that. And she has to do this at a time there's a lot of tension in the Democratic caucus. You've got uh, the members who come from swing districts uh, who are very concerned about um, uh, striking that path. And you've got some very liberal members who are anxious for progressive priorities. Uh, That is a lot to hold together. And there is no... She has a narrower majority now than she ever had in the past. At the moment, she can only lose two Democratic votes and get something through on a party line vote. As we close, uh, it is a power uh, essay. It is a study of leadership of Nancy Pelosi. Are the lessons that you relate in this book applicable only to her life, or could anyone in politics pick it up and see a roadmap for success? Oh, I think broad political lessons. And the number one lesson she learned from her father is nobody is going to give you power. You have to seize it. That's why she challenged Denny Hoyer uh, in that race for Democratic whip all that time ago. And that is advice she continues to give political hopefuls. Susan Page, the new book is called Madam Speaker. Thank you so much. This is your pub day, I think, isn't it? It is. Thank you for spending it with C-SPAN, and we appreciate spending an hour with you. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for listening. You might also be interested in our newest podcast, Book Notes Plus. C-SPAN's Brian Lamb is taking the concept from his long-running BookNote series and tailoring it for a podcast audience. You'll hear a mix of new interviews with nonfiction authors and historians and some favorites from the BookNotes archives. You can find BookNotes Plus wherever you get your podcasts.